from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. So, uh, I'd like to say it's my great pleasure today to introduce Paul Hendrickson. Paul is the author of five books, most recently, Hemingway's Vote, Everything He Loved in Life and Lost. From 1977 to 2001, Paul was a staff feature writer at the Washington Post, which is how I got to know his work. In early 2001, in an article in the Washington Post magazine, Paul published a piece on the Emmett Till murder that I was very struck by. And that part of that eventually went into his book, Sons of Mississippi, A Story of Race and Its Legacy. That article inspired me as I was beginning to work on my own memoir about growing up in Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement. But I have to say my link to Paul goes beyond that. In the summer of 1983, when we were both younger men, I read Paul's memoir, Seminary, A Search. I was so moved by the book that I wrote a letter to Paul in care of the Washington Post, a letter that he returned. And it's a letter that I still have to this day. In response to my letter, Paul wrote this to me. He said, to believe is a gift, and gifts are not things you take on terms, you just take them. So today, I'm here to say to you that Paul Hendrickson's writing is a great gift to you all, something you don't take on terms, you just take it. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Paul Hendrickson. surprised me with that letter that he would have saved and he was too modest really to talk about his own writing which has grown and grown and grown and he wrote a beautiful Mississippi memoir of, of a couple of years ago and he's the director of publishing at the Library of Congress that they don't give those jobs out to everybody so I wish in fact that I could take the allotted time here and just talk about some friends and beloved students whom I see in the audience. If I do too much of that, uh, I won't get to the main point, but we, um, there was a breakfast this morning at the Washington Post where I worked for 23 years, and it was um, moving for me to walk back into that building. I only, it was the second time that I've walked back in since I left there nearly 14 years ago. And the person handing out name tags was Dan Balls, who's here in the audience. And everybody in this building and on this yard, up and down, would have to know Dan Balls' name, one of the premier political reporters uh, of our time, uh, who has endured and endured and endured. But I walked into the building with my old pal David Marinus. So I'm feeling sentimental, and you'll allow that, I guess, for an old fart uh, to be sentimental for a moment or two. But students of mine whom I've taught at the University of Pennsylvania, Jess and Molly and Becca and others of you who are here, I'm very grateful because each of you, in your own way, has helped me whether you know it or not, believe, to 
playback on the words that Ralph was reading to you. I know that that letter to Ralph would not have been typed on a computer. It would have been on an old, probably IBM Selectric that the posts used. Maybe it was even on a manual in 1983. Um, I, I, so that nothing gets off schedule, I'm going to try to do my part at least in uh, trying to do this right. I'll probably talk for 20 to 25 minutes, which might then leave because it's 11 o'clock and I'll put out my watch. Um, and that might leave a few minutes for questions at the end, if there are. Um, Hemingway's book was published in hardback a year ago and late this summer came out in, in soft cover. Um, one of the great uh, satisfactions for me are the letters that I have been receiving. And when I say letters, I mean email, because that's obviously the way we work in the world. Um, a few letters with an envelope licked and a stamp affixed, but mostly emails. And the quality of these emails, I have to say, I don't think they're responding so much to me as today as they are to Ernest Hemingway himself. Can I just read you very quickly two emails from the same man, uh, a physician, who in fact uh, is a 1977 medical graduate at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I teach, and that got my attention for that reason, but 1977 was also the year I began at the Washington Post. Here is part of what he said. I had long viewed Hemingway in a spiritual context, his life confirming what is written in Ecclesiastes, with much wisdom comes much sadness. Those who assail him need to do so for their own personal reasons, just as those who praise him without qualification. The only thing that exceeded Hemingway's grasp of the human condition was its grasp on him. I would have liked the opportunity to be his doctor. Um, I, I got that email, and it, generally when I get emails from readers, I very quickly and kind of formally and a little standoffishly respond, thank you very much, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that the book spoke to you in some way. But that was a special email, and so I responded, and probably I invited him in my response to write to me again, and, and he did a few days later, and listened to what he said in the next email. The goal of language is to transcend language. I would say E.H. was a barista and tried, as writers do, to make right on paper that which was wrong in their lives. Life wounds all. Art heals both artist and audience. Medicine is art as necessary to physician as patient. For each, fear is the thing. That man should be up here talking to you today, not me. Um, Hemingway's Boat. The watery book that I worked on for roughly seven years, and that took me from Havana to Key West, to Oak Park, Illinois, to Idaho, to Northern Michigan, and to a lot of other watery and non-watery points in between, was never meant to be Hemingway biography, not in any conventional sense. 
We've had far too many biographies in the past 50 years, not to say daffy critical studies and even daffier psychological explanations of the man. Rather, the work was trying to come to a modest understanding of the almost insanely complicated life of Ernest Hemingway through the narrative lens of something in the material world he had loved very much. A possession that was intimately his and he hers for 27 years, which were his final 27 years. Her name was Pilar, and she was his 38-foot, seagoing, motorized fishing vessel, and she lasted him through three wives, the Nobel Prize, and all his ruin. He owned her, fished her, worked her, rowed her, from the waters of Key West to the Bahamas to the dry Tortugas to the north coasts and archipelagos of Cuba. She wasn't a figment or a dream or a literary theory or somebody's psychosexual interpretation. She was actual. Onto her varnished decks, hauled in over her low-cut stern on a large wooden roller, had come uncounted marlin and broadbill swordfish, tuna, sailfish, kingfish, snook, wahoo, tarpon, horse-eyed jacks, pompano, dolphin, barracuda, bonito, and mako shark, which, as Hemingway once said, are the ones that smelled oddly sweet and have those curved-in teeth that give them their Spanish name, Dentuso. This factory-made craft, sturdy, faithful, humble by 30s yachting standards, became the structural prism and storytelling device and organizing principle through which I searched for the man himself. If I spent seven years writing Pilar in my head as metaphor and narrative vehicle, would that I could have had one real ride on her and felt her under me in a wholly different way. I say seven years, but in truth I think the origins go back at least through three decades and four intervening books. To say just a bit of it, in early 1980, on the island of Bimini, when my wife and I were in weekend escape from the snows of Washington, where I was a staff writer, I encountered Ernest Hemingway's little brother, Les Hemingway, 16 years his junior, whom he used to call the Baron when he was being nice to him. The Baron, in his mid-60s, was sort of a failed man. Who could ever live under the shadow of the Hemingway volcano? And yet, a very nice guy. He told me some incredibly sad family stories that weekend. Maybe this is where the idea first seeded itself. I don't really know. Maybe I don't want to know. You see, I've long believed that our writing projects find us, not we them. And sometimes the finding can be a half-alert thing winding on for years. What we need to do is be grateful. Hemingway's boat is largely the story of the span of years between the first week of April 1934 and the first week of July 1961. But the narrative doesn't always stay there. No human history ever proceeds in a straight line, perhaps 
least of all Ernest Hemingway's. His prose was wonderfully rooted in geography and linear movement, but his life, like his boat, beat against so many cross currents. It's about the strange, sad distance from a Brooklyn boatyard named Wheeler Shipyard, Inc. to a tight, oak-paneled entryway in a bunker-like house in Ketchum, Idaho, when the world went away from a suffering man in fractions of a second. My aim has been trying to lock together the words Hemingway and Boat in the way that the locked together and equally American words say DiMaggio and Bat, say Satchmo and Horn, will quickly mean something in the minds of most people, at least of a certain age. It's about such ideas as fishing, friendship, and fatherhood, and love of water, and what it means to be masculine in our culture, as that culture is now rapidly changing, and the notion of being boat-struck, which is a malady that seems to affect men more than women, and how the deep good in us is often matched only by the perverse bad in us, and not least, about the damnable way our demons seem to end up always following us even when we think we've escaped them and are out cruising on the stream. The Gulf Stream, that belt of deep blue water, which Hemingway thought of almost mystically as the Great Blue River. In late May of 2005, I went to Cuba to see the stream for myself, but more importantly, to behold in the flesh, so to speak, Hemingway's boat. She was sitting up on concrete blocks like some old and gasping, browned-out whale, maybe a hundred yards from his house, under a kind of gigantic carport with a corrugated plastic roof on what was once his tennis court, just down, just down from the now-drained pool where Ava Gardner had reputedly swung nude. Even in her diminished, dry-docked, parts-plundered state, I knew Pilar would be beautiful, and she was. I walked round and round her. I took rolls and rolls of pictures of her long, low hull, of her slightly raked mahogany stern, of her nearly vertical bow. When the guards weren't looking, I reached over and touched her surface. The wood, marbled with hairline fissures, was dusty, porous, dry. It seemed almost scaly. It felt febrile. It was as if Pilar were dying from thirst. It was as if all she wanted was to get into water. But even if it had been possible to hoist her with a crane off of those blocks and ease her onto a flatbed truck and take her away from that steaming hillside and set her gently in Havana Harbor, would Hemingway's boat go down like a stone boiling and bubbling to the bottom, her insides having been eaten out long ago by termites and other barely visible critters. A man who let his own insights, insides 
get eaten out by the diseases of fame, had dreamed new books on this boat. He had taught his sons to reel in something that sounds like, that, that feels like Moby Dick on this boat. He had accidentally shot himself in both legs on this boat. He had fallen drunk from the flying bridge on this boat. He had written achy, generous, uplifting, poetic letters on this boat. He had propositioned women on this boat. He had hunted German subs on this boat in World War II. He had saved family members from shark attack on this boat. He had acted like a boor and a bully and an overly competitive jerk on this boat. He could make her do 16 knots at full out, and he could make her cut a corner like a midshipman at Annapolis. When she was up and moving, her prow smartly cutting the waves, it was as if she had a foaming white bone in her teeth, which is an expression old seamen sometimes use. When he had her loaded for a long cruise, she'd hold 2,400 pounds of ice for keeping cool the Hatui beer and the daiquiris, the avocados and the Filipino mangoes. And now, Hemingway's boat sat beached and grime-coated and time-stunned in the Cuban sun. When he got this boat, or more precisely, when he placed the order for her and put down $3,000 toward a full purchase price, courtesy of a hastily arranged loan advance from the editor of a new magazine in America called Esquire, and these were to be against future articles, it was April 5th, 1934, and he was just back from safari in East Africa, having come triumphantly into New York Harbor the day before on the SS Paris. Ernest Miller Hemingway at this moment was not quite 35 years old. He was still living and writing in Key West, a sand-bitten and depression-sagging outpost at the bottom of America. He was rugged handsome, youthful, trim-waisted, owner of a killer grin and an even more killer ego, the reigning monarch of American literature, a sportsman and a sensualist, glorying in his life in the external physical world. And when he lost Pilar, in that moment when he lost everything, on a summer Sunday in 1961, in a place where the mountains outside his three picture windows in his living room were as jagged as the teeth of a shredding saw. He was 19 days shy of his 62nd birthday, prematurely old, multi-diseased, mentally bewildered, delusional, slurred of speech, in exile from Cuba, from the stream, from his boat, dislocated by Fidel's revolution, unable to compose so much as one true sentence a day or so, he had wept on a sofa in front of family in his Ketchum living room. Is it any wonder the most imitated writer of the 20th century rose sometime after seven o'clock that morning, slipped a red silk dressing robe over blue pajamas, put on slippers, 
moved past the master bedroom where his fourth wife was sleeping, went down the red carpeted stairs, crossed the length of the living room to the kitchen, retrieved the key to the locked storeroom where the weapons were, went down to the basement, took shells from an ammo box, closed and relocked the door, came back upstairs, walked ten steps to the front entry foyer, opened the entryway door, stepped inside, placed the butt of the gun on the linoleum tile, tore open the breech, slammed in the cartridges, snapped it shut, bent over as you might bend over a water fountain, rested his forehead against the blue steel and blew away his entire cranial vault with the double-barreled 12-gauge Boss shotgun with which he had once shot pigeons. In the summer of 1987, as a Washington Post reporter, I searched out and interviewed Hemingway's three sons. Perhaps by then a book or an idea of a book was struggling to get up above ground. The 9,000-word, two-part series was called Papa's Boys. Their father had been dead for 26 years, and the sons themselves were late, middle-aged men. What I recall so vividly about Jack and Patrick and Gregory Hemingway in their deep, psychic sibling pain was their attempt to say how fine it had been to spend time with their father outdoors, in Idaho meadows flushing quail, in the stream going for the monsters, in high Wyoming creeks fighting rainbows. No one could ever take those feelings and experiences away. Past all of their father's posing and public brawling, past all of his posthumous, critical whittling down, past all of the intentional and unintentional psychic hurt he had inflicted on them, what each Hemingway son still possessed was the memory of the man when he was good. Gregory Hemingway, the youngest, the most deeply scarred of the three, the most gifted athlete in the family, the one with the truest writing gift, the one who had been nicknamed Giggy by his father, had grown up to be a medical doctor, like his paternal grandfather. Giggy had also spent most of his adult life struggling, and to me, heroically, seems not too strong a word, against the compulsion to dress up his squat, bulky body in hosiery, brassiers, wigs, girdles, makeup, spiked heels, fingernail polish, and then to go out into public places talking to people in his deep-chested voice. He was 55 and in the Miami area when we met. Coarse gray hair fell in clumps over his face. His teeth were wrecked. He was spending his days in public parks and libraries. He had no fixed address. He had been married and divorced several times. He was estranged from most of his children. The medical career had drained away. Sometimes, he said, he would go out into Biscayne Bay in a small rowboat 
to hand fish over the side with a night crawler, to fall asleep in the sun until something from below jerked him awake. Giggy said, and it was easy to believe, that he had undergone 98 electroshock treatments. I've taken every fucking pill there is, he said softly. These horrible mixed-up feelings you have, the love and the hate, he said. If Gigi was the son who disappointed Hemingway the most, he was also the son whom Hemingway forsook the least. And I believe that both of them, the one who exploded himself into infinity, the one too long regarded as the genetic blunder of the Hemingway family, were far braver human beings than we ever knew, and were locked together more intimately than any of us ever knew. I'll come to the end of this by reading you some of Hemingway's own words, but they may, might not be words you have read before or heard before. I need to set this up. Luke backward 17 days from his death to June 15, 1961 at Rochester, Minnesota. A man in the psychiatric ward of St. Mary's Hospital at Mayo Clinic is writing a letter to a nine-year-old boy. The man writes it on two small sheets of notepaper in his big, round, legible hand with his trademark downhill slant. An irreversibly damaged Ernest Hemingway, his inner landscape now a paranoid nightmare, has found within himself at the end of his life the kindness and courage and momentary lucidity, not to say literary grace, to write 210 beautiful words to a kid he likes very much. Whenever I begin to feel revulsion at Hemingway's ego and boorish behavior toward other human beings, I like to take out a copy of this letter. A month ago, I was in Sun Valley, Idaho, and a very clear photostat of the letter is hanging on a wall in the Sun Valley Resort and Lodge. And I was there in the company of my 24-year-old son. We were, I was participating in, a, in the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and I took my son, John, to read it. And I stood there while he read it and watched his face. 210 words with so much emotion tucked below the surface of the prose. The sentences pile-driven by contained feeling and acute observation of the natural world. That would have been a half-decent output for a workday, even in a master's prime. This boy, who is not just any boy, his name is Frederick G. Saviors, although everyone, including Hemingway, calls him Fritz, has a congenital heart condition. He's not going to live long. 
He is the son of George Saviors, who is Hemingway's small-town doctor in Ketchum, Idaho, who is also one of Hemingway's favorite duck-hunting companions. In these last weeks, Hemingway has been brought in secret once more for treatment to Mayo. Not long after this note to Fritz, Hemingway will fool his foolish doctors at the world-famous clinic into believing he is well enough to go home to Idaho, and almost immediately, the shotgun will go off in the Sunday quiet of the house that sits a couple of hundred yards up the steep slope from the west bank of the Big Wood River. The patient on the locked and window-barred ward at St. Mary's has just learned that Dr. Savior's son has been taken back to a Denver hospital. In Idaho, Hemingway and Fritz and Fritz's dad like talking about the Yankees and rainbow trout. But none of that will ever be the same again. St. Mary's Hospital, Rochester, Minnesota, June 15, 1961. Dear Fritz, I was terribly sorry to hear this morning in a note from your father that you were laid up in Denver for a few days more and speed off this note to tell you how much I hope you'll be feeling better. It has been very hot and muggy here in Rochester, but the last two days it has turned cool and lovely with the nights wonderful for sleeping. The country is beautiful around here and I've had a chance to see some wonderful country along the Mississippi where they used to drive logs in the old lumbering days and the trails where the pioneers came north. Saw some good bass jumping in the river. I never knew anything about the upper Mississippi before and it really is a very beautiful country and there are plenty of pheasants and ducks in the fall. But not as many as in Idaho and I hope we'll both be back there shortly and can joke about our hospital experiences together. Best always to you, old-timer, from your good friend who misses you very much, Mr. Papa. P.S. Best to all the family and feeling fine and very cheerful about things in general and hope to see you all soon, Papa. No one knows for sure, but these seem to be the last real sentences Ernest Hemingway set down on paper amid so much ruin, still the beauty. Thank you very much. Disappear, or maybe someone has a question, which I 
in my stumbling way, might be able to try to help. The water of the stream was usually a dark blue when you looked out at it, 
and when there was no wind. But when you walked out into it, there was just the green light of the water over that flowery white sound, sand. And you could see the shadow of any big fish for a long time before he could ever come in close to the beach. That's that first paragraph. And no matter what else you want to say about that cobbled together book, I don't think there's a word off in that lapidary first paragraph. Is there another question? I was just curious and wanted to ask if you yourself are a deep sea fisherman. That's a wonderful question. I am a passionate fly fisherman. Um, Hemingway, in his youth, was in Michigan, was a fly fisherman. That's how he started out. Um, I am not a deep sea fisherman. I went out a time or two. Um, but I met Hemingway and his passion for fishing at the intersection, I think, of this wispy little rod that you can hold in your hand and will tremble to your heartbeat, literally, because a fly rod weighs two and a half ounces. And, um, and you've got a little uh, fly that three of them would sit handily on your thumbnail. And if God and the day and the fate and the water is with you, you can catch a monster rainbow on that wispy little blow-away wad of hackle and glue. So I met Hemingway there at that intersection, and I think I learned something about his love for fishing. And indeed, ma'am, he writes gorgeously uh, about fly fishing. What happened with him is in 1928 when he discovered Key West for the first time, and then later in Cuba, he needed horizons that were larger and more powerful and scarier than a trout stream where the world seems to be flowing rapidly past you in all of its clarity. He needed to go out there and test himself against these monsters that could be in, in a body of water, the stream that could go one mile down. Who knew what was lurking in those unfathomable depths? The carcasses of slave ships? So his imagination needed 850-pound marlins and mine, a far more paltry literary imagination, uh, is so content to bring in something like that. Just the other day at my local fly stream at Valley Forge National Park where Washington headquartered the troops in that terrible winter, I caught a feisty little brown trout. He was only seven inches, but for a second I thought I had Moby Dick on the reel, on the line. Oh, somebody else has a question. Um, you know, while somebody else is coming, I was talking earlier about friends and faces, and the, it, we lived here for uh, 28 years. We lived on Capitol Hill for 14, and we lived in Tacoma Park, and every time I come back, I have a son who lives here, and is getting married in a month, and every time I come to Washington, it's the largest tug on my emotions. There are several old friends here from Tacoma Park. In fact, the media escort, the man who brought me over to this tent, is someone that we, his daughter and our sons played on the same Little League teams in Tacoma. So what loops around comes around, and I'm very proud to be here in front of you. Is there, yes ma'am? I'm curious if there's any projects 
walk back in. Um, but I went there, and it was, it's 90 miles from Miami, as we know. It was, and I've traveled a lot as a reporter, the most exotic travel I ever did. And I don't mean just those 1954 Studebakers without mufflers that are going off kilter uh, down the street. It's such a wonderful time warp. Um, uh, there's nothing American. There are no Coca-Cola signs. In my hotel room, I turned on the television. There were three channels. I called them Fidel 1, Fidel 2, Fidel 3. He was on all of them all the time. But that was in 2005, and he later got sick. It was um, an intensely wonderful, exotic experience. And I believe, my gosh, I'm saying this a mile and a half from the White House. What do I know? But I think that if President Obama gets reelected, I hope there's some Obama voters in here. I'm one. Uh, uh, I think Cuba's going to open up quickly. I really do. Thank you. Uh, Bill Seedike, my old Tacoma Park neighbor, is saying, get the fuck ball, get the fuck um, I guess we have to go. Thank you all very much. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.